0: Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about the Wu-Tang Clan's The RZA are insane. At the age of nine, he was hanging around junkies and dealers, perverts, and sex workers in Times Square. And by his teens, he was selling dime bags of weed to day traders on Wall Street. His first shot at a music career, it backfired, plunged him back into a cycle of poverty and violence that he was so desperately trying to escape. He sold harder drugs in Ohio, where he was involved in a Christmas Eve shooting that landed him in a fight for his life. And this all happened before the RZA made great music some of the most definitive hip-hop music of all time as mastermind of the groundbreaking wu-tang clan unlike that music i played for you at the top of the show that wasn't great music that was a preset loop from my melotron called jackie's beach party mk1 i played you that clip because i can't afford the rights to black or white by michael jackson And why would I play you that specific slice of shaman cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on December 24th, 1991. And that was the day that the RZA was arrested and charged with attempted murder. On this episode, dime bags, poverty, hard drugs, a Christmas Eve shooting, and attempted murder in Wu-Tang Clan's The RZA. I'm Jake Brennan and this is disgrace land. The glue sniffer stood there drooling. His speech was slurred, eyes half-closed. It's a pathetic bastard. Harmless, though. But he was important. Important to nine-year-old Bobby Diggs, the boy the world would later know as the Rizza. And the young RZA, AKA young Bobby here, was equally important to the glue sniffer. The glue sniffer was older, so he could buy Bobby a ticket for the R-rated movie that Bobby wanted to see. And to reciprocate, in addition to the $1.50 it cost for a ticket, Bobby handed over an extra buck to fund the glue sniffer's junkie lifestyle. It was a win-win. But still, $2.50. $2.50 didn't come easy. You ask your mom a stupid question like, hey, ma, you got 25 cents? And you get the same answer every time. Boy, I don't even have good sense. So it was a big deal for a nine-year-old to put a couple of bucks in the hands of a junkie in Times Square and trust that he'd return with a movie ticket. Bobby hustled to raise that kind of dough, delivering papers and shoveling snow. He was relieved to see the glue sniffer stumble back and hand over the ticket. And then the pathetic bastard hobbled off to get what he wanted, heroin, which here in Times Square in 1978 was easy to find. In 1978, New York City's Times Square had what you wanted, especially if what you wanted was filthy and depraved. Peep shows, live nude girls, porn movies 24-7, it was more than just perverts, it was also junkies, like I said, nodding off, and dope, dust, and coke, all just a handshake away. It was stick-up men, their pistols pressed into your waist. Give me everything you got, young blood. And the sex workers, they got all your money too. They just took it with honey instead of piss. But Bobby Diggs didn't want any of that. He didn't want to get off, and he didn't want to get high, at least not for now. Fuck Triple X. He wanted triple feature of kung fu movies. As soon as Bobby stepped off West 42nd Street, took his seat inside the Deuce, one of Times Square's grimy movie theaters, he was transported. The projector came to life, and the title cards hit the big screen. Fury of the Dragon. Flying, Gillotine, Five Deadly Venoms, Shao versus Wu-Tang, Bruce Lee, Gordon Liu, the Brothers Lao, the choreographed fights, the costumes, the over dialogue, and the code of the samurai. The films were fantastical, mythical even. The all-day experience took Bobby to another world in another universe, so far away that for a couple of hours, he could forget about the outside world, like the projects in Brooklyn's Brownsville neighborhood. Bobby, his mother and his siblings crammed into a small apartment, four brothers sharing two twin beds in the same clothes. Yo, did you wear those pants yesterday? They better not smell like your nuts because I'm wearing them today. And outside on the streets, you had to plan three steps ahead. Brownsville was the kind of place where dudes jumped you just for standing in the wrong spot. And if you were caught with some change in your pockets or nice kicks on your feet, kiss that shit goodbye. When Bobby's mom fell behind on rent and they were evicted, that was actually a blessing in disguise. Because that's how Bobby's family ended up in Staten Island. Staten Island was different from Brooklyn, less hostile turf to navigate. Bobby's odd jobs brought in some cash, enough to ditch school each week and go to Times Square and watch a new kung fu movie. In a four-year span alone, Bobby must have seen 200 of them. He also bought a pair of Technics turntables and then a microphone and a cheap drum machine. Hip-hop was the pulse of New York at the time. At least it was to Bobby and his cousins, Russell and Gary. Didn't matter if hip-hop began in the South Bronx. Now it permeated every borough, from block parties on the street to Mr. Magic's rap attack radio show on the air. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Busy B, Dougie Fresh, Cool Mo D, EPMD. Bobby, along with Russell and Gary, formed their own rap trio as teenagers. All in together now, they called themselves. And they dreamed of hitting the big time and leaving life in the projects in the dust. But there was no money in dreams. The money was in reality. and reality was the streets. The streets had a lure because the streets had dollars. More dollars than you can make pushing a fucking shovel up a driveway in the snow. And once you made a little bit of that money and saw what it got you, you only wanted more. From where he sat in Zucote Park, he could see the yuppie coming. That uptight ass-clenched power walk, product in his hair and pleats in his pants. The New York Times Stock Exchange didn't break for lunch, but around noon on weekdays, floor traders spilled out onto the street. They needed fresh air, they needed a break from shouting at the big board, and they needed something to chill them the fuck out. Weed. Bobby had what they were looking for, they didn't care that he was a teenager. For Bobby, it was easy money, and it sure beat getting up at the ass crack of dawn to deliver papers. And the he slipped you a bill, and you handed him the dime bag. Bill, dime bag, bill, dime bag, bill, dime bag. And Bobby did it so many times that it became rope. But he got a little too comfortable. Unlike the game of chess unfolding on the table in front of him in the park, Bobby didn't plan three steps ahead. Blue light sirens, NYPD swarming the park with guns drawn, cold steel snapped tight around Bobby's wrists. Arrested, thrown in a holding cell for selling weed, but fortunately let go after a day or two. Unfortunately, however, the whole incident wound up on Bobby's permanent record. But Bobby was busy thinking of other records, hip-hop records. With his turntables and some borrowed gear, namely a four-track recorder and a Roland 909 drum machine, Bobby assembled a makeshift studio in his apartment. next to Kung Fu, making music was Bobby's obsession. He was also thinking about surviving and providing. In 1988, when Bobby was 19, his mother left New York for Ohio with most of his siblings, leaving Bobby behind to take care of his little brother in the family apartment. Bobby's dime bag hustle wasn't always enough, so they stole food from convenience stores. They got by on ramen and weed. There had to be a better way. Maybe it wasn't a question of dreams versus reality. Maybe it was as simple as changing your reality, willing something new into existence. Like the feeling Bobby got when he stepped inside the deuce and was transported to another place entirely. Maybe he could do that with music. He started by creating a new persona for his musical pursuits, called himself Prince Rakim. The guys he was making music with followed suit his Staten Island friend Dennis Cole became Ghostface Killa, named after a character in one of Bobby's beloved Kung Fu movies. Kung Fu also inspired the name of one of Bobby's cousins, Russell Jones, who now went by Old Dirty Bastard. But it was Bobby's other cousin, Gary Grice, a formidable threat on the mic, who called himself The Genius, and who would later become The Jizzah, who got Bobby thinking about something else, numbers. Not the number of dime bags he sold that week, and not the number of dollars he owed in rent. Supreme numbers, as in supreme mathematics. A principle of the 5% nation, AKA the nation of gods and earths. An offshoot of Islam that empowered and inspired hip hop culture in the 1980s. The 5% nation believes that black people are the original people on planet earth black men being gods and black women being queens. They also believe that only 10% of the people in the world know this, but that they deliberately withhold that knowledge from 85% of the world in order to wield dominance. The remaining 5%, the 5% nation, are the ones who know the whole truth and are determined to spread the word to everyone else. Gary was a 5 percenter Gary was one of the smartest dudes Bobby knew. So Bobby became a five percenter, too, and a believer in supreme mathematics. The numbers helped you understand how humanity and the universe are connected. Each number had meaning. For example, the first number, the number one, is knowledge. You get to look, listen, assess the situation. And this was not new to Bobby. He'd been doing the knowledge, as they said, for years all the way back to his Brownsville days when he had to calculate every step he took. He also recognized that sometimes he didn't do the knowledge, like in Zaccote Park when the cops came down on his weed hustle. And what did Bobby Diggs know now? That he wanted not only to survive, but to thrive, to get above the bullshit going down on the streets, to make hip hop music not just a dream, but a reality. Bobby believed in himself, And if he believed in himself, and believed in the power of the 5% nation, he was confident that he could realize his goals. He just wasn't sure if the streets would actually let him go. Okay, listen, if you're one of the few people out there who's new to podcasts, new to Disgraceland, new to true crime, if you have not already listened to the wildly popular and hysterically funny and informative podcast, My Favorite Murder, hosted by my friends Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstar on the Exactly Right Network, then what are you waiting for? You got to check out My Favorite Murder in each episode. They're going to tell you stories about infamous serial killers, cold cases, incredible survivor stories and listen these guys are wildly popular for a reason they have an incredible chemistry they're hysterical they're smart as all get up and you're instantly going to feel like they're long lost friends They've got great new episodes on the subjects I've already mentioned, but they've got this whole treasure trove of back episodes, including well-known stories from true crime and music history like the deaths of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen, the murder of pop singer Selena, and now the infamous story of The Cocaine Bear. I've known Karen in Georgia since the beginning of my sort of foray into podcasting. They've been heroes of mine. I was on their podcast in March of 2022 to share my hometown story about a prison break party that I attended in high school. Uh, And they told me it was one of their most popular episodes. So you can check that out as well. Listen to My Favorite Murder wherever you listen to podcasts. Brand new episodes drop every Thursday. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland. All access by visiting DisgracelandPod.com slash membership. 1991 was a landmark year for hip-hop. A Tribe Called Quest released the low-end theory. Public Enemy dropped Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Black. And De La Soul beat the sophomore slump with their brilliant De La Soul is Dead. It was also the year that N.W.A. became the first rap group to hit the number one spot with an album on the Billboard 200. One month after N.W.A. made history, in July 1991, Bobby Diggs, or should I say Prince Rakim, released his debut single on Tommy Boy Records, the same label that De La Soul was signed to. But that single, Ooh I Love You Rakim," a clunky boast of sexual conquests over a Stax record sample, had little in common with De La, in fact, it had more in common with some of 91's other major hip hop stars, such as Tone Loke and MC Hammer, who the hip hop heads saw as rap pop hybrids that lacked authenticity. That was the problem with Ooh I Love You Rakeem. It wasn't authentic. It was the product of years of hard work on Bobby's part, the dedication to his craft as a beatmaker, a songwriter and an MC. His ability to network and connect with the right people in the right place at the right time and his hustle a hustle that he had learned on the streets and was now applying to the music industry. But the hustle failed, and it wasn't entirely Bobby's fault. Tommy Boy Records passed on the songs that reflected Bobby's gritty reality and instead went for the novelty track. They put him in a top hat and tails in the music video, and they tried to make Bobby something he wasn't. And the whole thing bombed, the single, the video, and Bobby's budding music career. Now Bobby was right back where we started. No record deal. No prospects in the music industry. No prospects, period. And he needed money. Bad. So Bobby had no choice but to go back to the only other thing he knew. Hustling drugs on the streets. But the streets had changed. A group of ruthless drug dealers from Brooklyn had set up shop in Staten Island's Park Hill. And they weren't selling dime bags of weed. They were moving a shit ton of crack cocaine, which was currently plaguing the projects of New York City and beyond. Not only was this group of dealers the biggest game in town, they were also the toughest. The body count that piled up in Park Hill, which locals were now calling Killahill, made that clear. Bobby wasn't an idiot, and there was no way he could compete, which gave him an idea. If he left New York and went to Steubenville, Ohio, where his mom and other siblings lived, he could be a big fish in a little pond run circles around those Midwest jokers and make a killing. Even if it meant selling a drug that killed his own people. Crack destroyed lives or ripped families apart. Bobby knew what he was getting into, but he also felt that given the circumstances, he had no choice. A few months later, in the fall of 91, Bobby bought a one-way train ticket to Ohio. He boarded the train with a briefcase. Inside the briefcase were his 5% Nation Lessons book a gold chain he could hawk for quick dough, product to sell, and a 25 caliber pistol. Ohio came as advertised. Bobby sold drugs, Bobby made money, and Bobby tried not to think about the moral ramifications of his actions. Company helped. His cousin Russell Jones, AKA Old Dirty Bastard, and his Staten Island buddy Dennis Coles, AKA Ghostface Killer, joined him in the hustle and on the trip. But in Ohio, they're all seen as outsiders and they attracted the anger and resentment of local dealers who felt like their turf was being invaded. And it seemed like every time they made a chunk of cash, something bad happened. Dirty got pinched, Ghost got shot. It was, as Bobby later said, a cycle of non-success. The math just wasn't adding up. Bobby was thinking about this as he sat behind the wheel of his sister's car at a traffic light in Steubenville. He was also thinking about what she told him when he left that evening. You better not fuck my car up. It was Christmas Eve, and it was late, and he waited for the light to turn green. He was driving two girls home, just friends. One of them was Ghost Girl. At least that's what Bobby thought. Then another car pulled up alongside them, four guys inside, all looking at Bobby and the girls. One of the dudes was bugging out, his eyes wide with rage, and Bobby knew that look. It was a look that said, yo man, you got my girl in your car. The dude was outside now, out of his car, and he stormed toward Bobby and he put his foot into the door of Bobby's sister's car. And the dude wanted to know what the fuck his girl was doing in a car with some other dude from New York. So he kicked the car again and Bobby panicked, not just because he promised his sister he wouldn't fuck her car up, but because he was outnumbered. He put his hand to his belt and felt his pistol. He wasn't going to use it, not unless he absolutely had to. He just wanted to make sure it was still there. The dude banged on the car window, and the girls freaked out, one of them screamed. They've got guns, just go, go, just go, just go right now. Bobby didn't check to see if the light had changed. He took his foot off the brake pedal and slammed it down on the gas. His adrenaline surged, and the engine roared, the wheels squealed, the Christmas lights strung up on houses outside flew by like melting day-glow crayons, and Bobby looked into the rear view, no one behind them. But he couldn't be too careful he didn't spend years learning how shit worked on the streets of new york to come all the way out to fucking ohio and drop his guard like some herb he drove around he parked killed the lights he turned them back on and drove around some more and he told the girls to chill the fuck out and finally hours later he drove them home the street was a dead end and the neighborhood was quiet christmas eve kind of quiet children nestled all snug in their beds visions of sugar plums and all that shit. And Bobby watched the girl walk up to her front door and get safely inside. And he was about to pull away when suddenly, a pair of headlights came on across the street. An engine revved. Fuck. Those dudes were waiting here all along. And the other car sped towards Bobby. Shots rang out, and Bobby hit the gas and peeled away, but it was a dead end. More shots, and Bobby turned the wheel and tried to maneuver his way out. His sister's car crashed up onto the sidewalk and the other car closed in. Bobby reached for his 25, pure instinct, pointed the pistol through the open window and fired. He racked the slide, aimed one more time, and again pulled the trigger. The gunshots woke up the neighborhood, lights flew on, faces pressed against windows, sirens wailed in the near distance. It was Cody Park all over again. But this time, it wasn't yuppies and dime bags of weed. This time, It was one guy shot in the thigh, another guy grazed by a bullet, and Bobby Diggs from Staten Island sitting in a Jefferson County jail cell awaiting trial for attempted murder. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. At first, it wasn't attempted murder. At first, Bobby was offered a plea deal for his role in the shooting which left one person shot in the thigh. After all, he'd acted in self-defense and there were four of them and only one of him. 60 days, he could do that time. But once the prosecution discovered that Bobby was not a local guy, but from New York City, that plea was no longer on the table. In the eyes of the Ohio authorities, Bobby Diggs and the guys he hung around with, guys like Old Dirty Bastard and Ghostface killer they could be part of a larger operation. Maybe an operation that was spreading its wings far beyond its New York base, bringing guns and drugs into their communities, and who knew how deep it all went? That was the thinking on behalf of the prosecution. It was attempted murder, which meant eight years behind bars. They wanted to bury Bobby Diggs, just like those four guys wanted to bury him under the cover of darkness on Christmas Eve. But Bobby wasn't going down that easy. Even though he was struggling, He struggled with knowing he was disappointing his mother. He struggled with the fact that his own sister had to put up her life savings, 10 grand, to cover his bail. And he struggled when he learned that his girlfriend was pregnant with his child. But struggling was all he knew. The prosecution, the judge, they hadn't seen the things he'd seen, experienced what he'd experienced, and they'd never pay off a glue sniffer just to see a fucking movie. And they weren't smarter than him either they couldn't do the math like he could. So when Bobby took the stand to testify, he thought of the 10 supreme numbers and how they could help him. One, knowledge. What did he know? He knew how he was seen by the cops, the prosecuting attorney and the judge, as a threat, as a menace to society. Two, wisdom. Once you've got knowledge, act upon what you know. He told the jury that he was not the person they all said he was. He wasn't a bad person he was a young man who made some bad decisions three understanding after you act upon what you know you've got to truly understand it yes he understood what got him in this situation in the first place which meant he could also understand how not to get into the situation again four culture the way of life after you know something and act upon it and understand it only then can you live it This culture of drugs and guns may have been the culture he came from, but it wasn't his culture. This was not his way of life. 5. Power, aka truth. He told the jury it hurt him to know that he had hurt another human being. That was the truth, and truth is power. 6. Equality. You must be equal in all aspects of one's true self. 7. God and perfection. G, the seventh letter of the alphabet. Seven colors in the rainbow. Seven notes on the musical scale. Eight, build. To elevate the foundation of knowledge. In order to build positivity, you must eliminate all negativity. His past was negative. His future was positive. Nine, born, to be, to exist. You're born first in the womb. You're born a second time mentally through the understanding of supreme mathematics. The day he testified was April 23rd. Take the 2 and the 3 from 23rd. Add them to 4 for April, the 4th month. That's 2 plus 3 plus 4, which equals 9. The 9th number is born. Today, he was a new person. 10 which is actually zero, because you are the one standing on the left side of a zero, and that zero is a circle, a cipher. Bobby knew about ciphers, groups of MCs standing in a circle, freestyling and working together. He knew that there was strength in the cipher, the bond, the completion of all 360 degrees, 120 degrees of knowledge, 120 degrees of wisdom, and 120 degrees of understanding to complete the circle. From knowledge to understanding and back again. Bobby concluded his testimony and returned to his seat at the defense table. The jury stood up and exited the courtroom. And Two hours later, the jury returned, and Bobby stood up to hear the verdict read. The foreman spoke. On the charge of attempted murder, we, the jury, find the defendant, Robert Diggs, not guilty. Bobby felt a weight lift from his shoulders. He turned to face his mother. She had a sober look on her face. Boy, she said. This is your second chance. Don't mess it up and don't look back. Bobby did the knowledge. He quit smoking, quit drinking, quit dealing dope. He fused the lessons of the street with the lessons of the 5%ers. He memorized the 120 questions and answers that unlocked the keys to life. Who is the original man? The original man is the Asiatic black man, the maker, the owner, the cream of the planet Earth, the father of civilization, the God of the universe. And who is he, Bobby Diggs? He was a new person. He was, as the teachings of the 5%ers taught him, born anew, but not as Prince Rakim. Rakim was the past. Rakim was negative. Bobby had to work on that positive build. His new persona would have purpose and intention, and it would be simple, just three letters. First was R. In the divine alphabet, R stands for rule or ruler, and to rule is to control righteously. Z is the last letter in the divine alphabet, representing the final step of consciousness and standing for Zig-Zag-Zig, which represents the 360 trip from knowledge to wisdom to understanding and back again, Zig,zag, zig And A, of course, is Allah, the Supreme Being, Original Man. R-Z-A, Ruler, Knowledge, Wisdom, Understanding, Allah. The Riza. The RZA then envisioned a cipher, a cipher that actually worked, unlike the cipher of poverty and violence he'd been trapped in, the cycle of non-success. The only way out was to make a new cipher, a new circle, a circle of power. The strongest, most powerful circle was a group effort, and the shit was bigger than you. You needed a group of guys who had your back and you had theirs, and let's call it a clan. That wasn't just knowledge, that was wisdom and understanding. A whole 360 degree trip, zig, zag, zig. The New York field office was busy for a Friday morning. The copy machine hummed nonstop. Phones were ringing off the hook, and the agent sat at his desk and took a sip of coffee. It was lukewarm, weak. In all honesty, the coffee sucked. The agent hoped that it would make up for a lack of taste with an abundance of caffeine to get him through the stack of paperwork sitting on his desk. He picked up the first memo on the stack. Federal Bureau of Investigation, written in all caps at the top. Font so bold the coffee should take notes. The date below the heading was August 4th, 1999, and the memo was just a few days old. The agent began to read. To New York, from New York. Case ID, number 281F-NY-NEW. Title, Wu-Tang Clan. The agent paused. Wu-Tang Clan? The hip-hop group? He was a little surprised to see their name, but not shocked. The FBI had a hard-on historically for musicians in the counterculture. Bureau agents before his time monitored Hendrix and the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin, and this probably wasn't any different. Rap music in particular was a hair across the ass of many a white-collar prude. He continued to read. Synopsis request to open a new case on above-captioned matter. Details. Information was received by the New York Police Department about criminal activity being conducted by members of the Wu-Tang Clan organization on Staten Island. The detectives have documented, in their case files, that the Wu-Tang Clan, or WTC, is heavily involved in the sale of drugs, illegal guns, weapons possession, murder, carjackings, and other types of violent crimes. Information developed by the detectives determined that the WTC has purchased numerous guns from the Steubenville, Ohio area. At least one of these guns has been identified as the murder weapon in the killing of a Robert Johnson, AKA Pooh, on Staten Island on 1230-97. Johnson was an associate of the WTC who had a falling out with the group and is believed that his murder was ordered by someone within the WTC. This murder case remains unsolved at this point. Seven years earlier, when Bobby Diggs was born anew as the RZA, when he made his triumphant return to Staten Island, having just dodged eight years in the pen, he thought he put Steubenville, Ohio, long behind him. He was wrong. The shooting put him on the radar, not just in the Midwest, but in New York. Lawyers talked, and so did cops, and detectives never shut up. They liked to connect the dots and tie one thing to another. Call up a guy they knew in the next state over and see if the extra piece of one puzzle fit into the missing piece of another. See if their hunch was true. And it was true. The RZA was planning something big. Real big, actually. But not a drug dealing crime syndicate. It was a hip hop group. The kind that no one had ever seen before. A group so big, they weren't just a group. They were a clan, the Wu-Tang Clan. A collection of MCs from Staten Island in Brooklyn. Guys who were all stuck in their own cycles of non-success. Guys who needed to bond together to make something greater than any one of them. Friends and cousins, like Ghostface Killer and Old Dirty Bastard, and Gary Grice aka The Genius aka The Jizza. Corey Woods aka Raekwon The Chef and Jason Hunter, otherwise known as Inspector Deck. You God, Method Man, Master Killa. Some of these dudes already had their alter egos from the streets. Others got their names from Rizza's favorite Kung Fu movies. The name Wu-Tang came from those movies too. The wu Tang sword style had fucked with dudes and the rhymes of the Wu-Tang Clan were unfuckwithable. Their tongues were their swords, and they honed their swordsmanship, not in Staten Island, but in Shaolin, more of a state of mind than a physical realm. The Wu-Tang Clan built a new world into which they could escape from the world they knew just like the Riza used to escape into the Deuce movie theater back in the day. But make no mistake, this was an escape, not a fantasy. Riza made them all promise. Give me a few years of your life and we'll not only be successful, we'll be famous. We'll be so rich that we'll never have to go back to selling drugs in the streets or stealing food from the neighborhood market. We'll take the hustle legit. The rest of the clan put their faith in their leader and the Riza delivered. Wu-Tang Clan became a worldwide phenomenon. But at the New York office of the FBI, seven years later, in 1999, the origin story of the Wu-Tang Clan didn't look like an innocent meeting of musical minds. And never mind the group's platinum first album or their four times multi-platinum second album. The feds knew a front when they saw one. The bureau memo that the agent with the shitty coffee was reading classified Wu-Tang as 281F which is FBI speak for a major criminal organization. Wu-Tang was a clan, all right. From the FBI's vantage point, a clan of organized crime. The agent took one last sip while he read the final paragraph on the page. The detectives are seeking the assistance of the FBI and the US Attorney's Office to further their case along as to package the numerous crimes committed by the WTC organization in the form of federal charges and RICO prosecution. The agent picked up the receiver of his desk phone and paused. Rico prosecution? This wasn't run-of-the-mill bureau paranoia. There was plenty of juice for the squeeze here. And if what he was reading was correct, this was just the tip of the iceberg. The agent punched in a number and the line rang. A voice answered and the agent spoke. It was his opinion that the bureau should approve the NYPD's request And begin surveillance of the Wu Tang Clan immediately. I'm Jake Brennan, and this episode of Disgraceland is to be continued. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit DisgracelandPod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod, and on YouTube at YouTube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock and He's a bad, bad man.